listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. I'm Valerie Barnhart, and I am an independent uh, filmmaker, director, and animator. I made an award-winning film called Girl in the Hallway. It's a short docu-horror true crime. It was uh, qualified for the Oscars in both the short animation and short documentary categories. And I'm right now working on a animated comedy through the National Film Board of Canada. And that's what's occupying my time as a late. Valerie Barnhart. Welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. And I will give this audience a little bit more on you. I'm going to read a small bit from your bio. Um, And you can always tell me if something's changed or if that's incorrect, because that is the nature of the internet, of course. It says, Valerie Barnhart is an independent animator and visual artist based out of Ottawa, Canada. Her interdisciplinary practice is exploratory in nature, but revolves specifically around the dynamics of silence and inaction as a form of violence. Valerie earned her BFA from Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design as a visual arts major major, with a studio specialty in printmaking, drawing, and academic emphasis on decolonization politics and non-Western art. Her art practice made a massive shift into documentary and animation entirely by accident, which we'll get into in this conversation. (laughs) Valerie taught herself how to animate during this production. Valerie has exhibited in Toronto, Vancouver, and Calgary. She lives with her husband and a motley crew of animals amongst piles of dusty books. So let's start right there with with that which is what's your favorite book (laughs) and could you provide any recommendations oh my god books oh don't even get me started that's the most difficult thing to ask me um i read voraciously i'm one of those people that read like three books at once wow um my favorite book oh gosh um i'm gonna have to say the right now at this very second this answer will change tomorrow but right now this very second at 11.13 in the morning, I will say The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. And I love it because it's told from, it's YA, which is really uh, cool. They get to tackle really interesting topics you don't see in adult fiction. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, the story is told by death. And death is telling you about the most interesting person death has come across in the existence of death and life. And it's a 12-year-old girl in Nazi Germany who steals books. Oh, wow. Okay. So spell the author's last name for me and for us. Zuzak. Z-U-S-K-S. Oh, let me just Google this. This is going to bother me if I say this wrong. They made a really bad movie. Don't watch the movie. Just read the book, okay? Um, Okay. Okay. Mark, the book thief. Let me just get the right spelling here. Google. I think I've Um, heard of it. Yeah. So it... Yeah, it's Z-U-S-A-K. It's won a lot of awards. Got it. Got it. Yeah, All so right. that's my official answer right now. I love it. I love it. Okay, so we'll, I'm like you. I do have a stack of books all around me at all times. Um, I am um, in the middle of so, so many. I think the last two books I started was one I've been, you know, you ever have like a movie or, or a book that's like on your mind for decades and you just never come around to reading it. Um, yeah. that's like the road for me. I've never read the road. So many things have been said about the road. Uh, so I am now reading the road and, um, by Cormac McCarthy. And I also just bought the four agreements, which is a wisdom <laughs> book by Don Miguel Ruiz and a book on wisdom. And, um, it's like, there's actually two or three other books I'm reading 
but I'm not going to mention them here. So I am just like you. I totally get that. And I am, I am into that. As we mentioned in your bio, you went to the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design and even spent some time at Willem de Kooning Academy. But you did not go to school to learn how to animate. Uh, no, so, no, I did <laughs> Which is, which is uh, amazing to me. How does one decide just to wake up one day and be an animator? It had to do with the story. I'm a huge fan of poetry. And um, so I was on YouTube going down a rabbit hole, watching like the poets do their thing on, on YouTube. And I came across this poet um, from the uh, San Francisco area uh, named Jamie DeWolf. And he performed this spoken word thing, which is my film, like, like this confession that was just like astounding. And I listened to it three times in a row. And I was like, this has to be a movie. This has to be a movie. Um, no one's going to make this a movie unless I make it a movie. And, and at that point I was just like, I have never made a movie before, but I don't care. I'm going to make a movie. It can't be that hard. Can it? Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll just animate it. Like that's not hard. That'll take me three months. And then three years later I have a movie. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that was my famous last word. So it, it was really, I, I was called to tell a story and I had to tell it and I had to do anything I had to do to tell a story. And that that's how that came across, came along with animation. Yeah. And we'll get into that a lot during this conversation because I'm just, I'm, I'm just, dumbfounded. I am, I am absolutely floored by you and your talent. And, um, by the end, we'll share some links to your website because even your, your art on paper is absolutely stunning. Um, you're, you have an art piece called uh, our name through that can stand up against any piece of art I've seen. Um, and, you have some photos too. I, I love your photo winter. So I encourage this audience to go to your website, which we'll share uh, and look at the photo winter. Um, it's so ominous. And then um, missing art, which is hilarious and uh, belongs in someone's wall as well. Jamie DeWolf, by the way, a very deep person, lots of poetry um, has done several things uh, for snap judgment which has been around since 2010, he kind of like a he looks like Morgan Spurlock a little bit. The guy who did super size me in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah. he kind of, that's, that's a really good analogy. And so he kind of puts you back on your heels when he gets so deep and emotional and, and um, hits you with the poetry and the storytelling. So really, really love that uh, for sure. So, you talk about the story turns you into an animator. So let's get into that a little bit. Girl in the Hallway is the short we're talking about. And it's such a powerful story. Um, you, you go down a rabbit hole on YouTube, I'm assuming, going through poetry. And you find this poem and this story by Jamie DeWolf, which is a true story about the murder of Ziana Fairchild, a seven-year-old child that was murdered by a serial killer in uh, California. It's absolutely heartbreaking, gut-wrenching to hear the story and to watch her animation, which is so brilliant. How did you connect with Jamie to get the approval to make this film? Honestly, it's social skills and stalker skills. You know, I went on the internet. Um, I stalked him a bit, found his email on his website, emailed him and just very nicely asked him if he would let me make an animation out of this, his story. And he thought I was just making like a, a silly little fan video. So he was like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah. And then I did this. So it was, it was, he was really on board, like right from the get go. Like he was all about it. That's amazing. So what has been his feedback once he realized this isn't a little, cause it took three years to make this. I'm sure he forgot. He told you it was okay. And then now it's winning awards. It was in a, uh, the Vimeo staff pick. It was uh, an Atlantic magazine choice. Uh, like you said, it was nominated for an Oscar or, or was in the line to be nominated for Oscar. So what, what is he saying now? Uh, contemporary. Um, I don't talk very much to Jamie. We, we didn't really have contact during the creation of the project. Um, Jamie doesn't 
see, that's the thing. Like it's, it's dirty laundry, right? So like, it was very emotional for him to experience the story because like, it's an adaptation of his performance. Right. So it's, it's scary to have somebody else take his story and give it, like put it through a filter and interpret it. Um, and then have that, that on the big screen in front of an audience for entertainment purposes, like at the world premiere, he was very emotional. And, um, I felt like what was probably the best bet was to give him space during that. Cause he was just very upset. It's a very upsetting thing for him. So it's not something he watches on a regular or anything like that. Absolutely not. Um, and, um, he's he's happy that it's gotten so much play and that it's gotten an awards and so much attention and he's glad like the story's gone out there um and more out in the public but it's still very difficult for him yeah and and one of the big themes of this story is this idea of you know silence is is violence and um i think this is kind of part of your background at least from, from college as well. And you're hearing this phrase, silence is violence a lot because in this, in this film, um, well, just the times we're living in, right? So black lives matter, different types of protests. Um, but in this film, the thing that you're describing, the thing that Jamie feels so guilty about Jamie DeWolf is that he sat by and watched this girl be alone every day and actually gave entrance to her killer over and over and over again, um, but closed the door on on the little girl because it wasn't his business. So have you had to adjust your behavior and how do you recommend people adjust to the fear of overreacting, the fear of invading someone else's privacy? See, that's a tricky thing. It's not so black and white, right? Because we all want to be that hero that runs into that burning building and like saves those lives, right? But... Um, it's a matter of like, what keeps you quiet and what keeps you from it, from stepping in, you know, and, and looking to that strength in yourself, right? Like there's a lot of reasons why a man would not invite a child into his apartment. Just assumptions people would go like just from that alone, you know? Um, but I, I think you're going to have to use your, your heart and your guidance on, on that, like for the specific circumstances, like, is it dangerous for you to step in? First off, is it safe for you to step in? Um, you know, like it, like it's, it's, uh, is, is it really like, it's tricky, right? It depends on the circumstances and depends on the person. And I think your upbringing and your common sense is going to be the best, uh, indicator on whether or not you should act or it's safe to act. Right. And that, you know, the thing that the film touches on a little bit is that that common sense muscle doesn't get worked a lot in everyday life. And so it can completely be out of shape at the very moment you need it. I know that for me, the effect that, and I know your audiences have had varying reactions to this film, tears and, and, and a lot of emotions. I know that when I watched it, the immediate thing I thought to myself was, Oh, I wouldn't have been that. I would have, I'm, you know, I'm a person that helps people. I would have definitely helped her. But then I'm reminded of all my white friends that said they would have been abolitionists back, (laughs) back in the slavery days. Every, every one of my white friends would have been John Brown. And it's just not true. Some of them would have been slave owners because that would have been common to do that at the time. And so it's a, it's a really tough thing. You're right. Like to grapple with, like, are you going to be the hero at the moment you need to be the hero? And are you going to even know to be a hero? And, and, and is it going to be appropriate, right? Are you going to accidentally ruin your own life trying to protect someone else's, uh, erroneously? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's complicated. It's, it's, it's very complicated, especially when you're talking about systemic issues, right? Cause like this was a poor neighborhood, everybody in that, that apartment building, everybody, all the neighbors had their own problems, you know, with poverty or addictions or whatever, you know? And, um, and so, so, that's the thing, but I don't know, like I live in a really bad 
area in my city. And, you know, um, I have a lot of pride for my neighborhood. And even though everyone likes to shit on it, like at the same time, like I like the fact that like my neighbors know each other and we keep an eye on each other. We know which cat belongs to which house or whose kids belong to which house. You, you know what I mean? Like, like it's more of a neighborhood. And um, so I always wonder about that in my own neighborhood. Like, you know, do people step in when they see someone in trouble? And I'll have to say, honestly, yes, in my neighborhood that happens. So I don't know about the dynamic in his building um, with his neighbors, you know, um, yeah. I'm losing my God, sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's true because it's not a function of income or socioeconomic status. It's a, it's a matter of trust. If you don't trust your neighbor to the left or the right, then you're not going to keep up with them. Um, in my exactly. neighbor, in my neighborhood, it's not a poor neighborhood, but uh, it's not bad. But I have such a close relationship with every person on my street. I know every person on my street, and it and it makes the entire neighborhood safer for everyone. It's an extremely sort of libertarian concept, but I think it really works and it's, and it's honest and it works out. Um, so, so thank you for that. By the way, I, I don't know if this problem will take care of itself in the future with big data as well, because everyone has a ring now or some sort of camera on their front stoop and someone's collecting that and aggregating that into a picture. We have facial recognition for better or worse and this idea of big data in the future, it seems like the issue will become, do I have the right to be tracked, right? Like, oh, I'm in a poor neighborhood. I can't afford to get these technologies. Therefore, no one saw my killer or no one uh, can, can predict through big data that this person is going to be a criminal, which, uh, which I think is less than 10 years away, personally. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a fascinating uh, idea, Valerie, once we go down the rabbit hole a little bit of like, <laughs> what's possible? Because on one hand, I don't like it. Like, I don't, I saw a black man be accused of a murder he didn't do through facial recognition. I read an article on that last week. Oh, yeah, there's inherent biases for sure in the facial acquisition um, software. They're, they're already showing biases with like all sorts of um, uh, applications for that, which is really disturbing when you think about it. Exactly. But it's all sort of in the, in this, in the realm of good intention. Like a, our intention is to find people like the guy in your movie that killed the little girl before he kills kind of thing. Or the idea is to yeah, understand how guy. they move. What'd you say? Yeah. He was a white guy. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. He was a white guy. Uh, he wasn't a person of color. So even the facial recognition software wouldn't have found that. I think when it comes to sociopathy and criminality, right? Like criminality is, is, uh, is, a social, is a social construct. Like what is it, what is a crime is, is defined by the society that the crime exists in. And, um, when it comes to sociopathy, um, that's a percent, that's a, that's a mental illness. That's a percent of the population. It's just going to be guaranteed. You're going to be born that way. Whether or not sociopathy goes to the extreme outlier of serial killer, right? That's an extreme outlier. Most sociopaths are lawyers and really good politicians, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, but like bad, bad sociopaths are like serial killers and in, you know, nothing like, so facial recognition software wouldn't stop Curtis Dean Anderson. Like he, he's banking these serial killers bank on the fact they're probably not going to get caught. And that's why they do the crime is they think they're so smart and clever that they'll be able to outsmart uh, the police. And, um, and, and there's nothing you can do to prevent sociopathy. So, so it's kind of like when you take a sociopath and you horribly abuse them, you put them in these social, like social factors, you create a serial killer. Well, like that's, you're not going to stop abuse. You're not going to stop these, these certain precursors that create someone like with that kind of criminality. And I think it's, it's really hard when it comes to things like serial killers, like, can we prevent that type of crime? I don't think we can. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think there are people that are smarter than me that think they can. And I would I would tend to agree with you. And just to be clear for the audience, Curtis Dean Anderson was the serial killer that killed Ziana Fairchild along with 11 others, 11 or 12 other children. Uh, if you 
care to look him up for any reason. Um, yeah, the FBI uh, is still looking for people to identify as victims. So the link is on my website for that if you want to be a true crime sleuth and um, read the reports for the FBI uh, call for help. Um, yeah, that's all on my website. Absolutely. We have a big audience in California, so there will be people that do that, I'm sure. Um, you used animation to tell the story, even though you didn't have this skill set. So why did you, you know, how did you decide, oh, I'm going to animate this. That's how I'm going to tell the story. And what was that process like? Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, animation is such a liberating choice as a documentarian. It really is. Because your story is located in reality, but your your imagery doesn't have to be. And that was the best way to approach the story because I'm dealing with poetry. So it's not an oddly literal uh, account of a crime um, and a confession and a witness testimony. It's, it's told in a poetic way. And I felt... Um, I can, I can, I'm not be limited by reality. I could create a psychological space uh, in animation and it would be a far more interesting film visually than, than like what I have with my budget constraints. Like do it yourself animation is really cheap. Not, not when you do it properly with like a, a, a pipeline and you know, all the, the, the roles, but if you do everything by yourself, it is super, super cheap. And so when I look at my budget constraints, animation made the most sense. I was able to make something pretty with no money, next to no money, versus I, I would have a very small budget, then I have to go fly out to Leo, California, and I have to go get all this B-roll, and I have to find all these people and get them on camera, and I have to get Jamie performing. Like, it, it wouldn't have been as powerful a movie, I think, if I went into live action. Animation is what was the best decision as a director. Yeah, you quoted as saying, you aren't really limited by your budget. You're limited by your artistry. Let that's your, my thing. Yes. Yeah. Let your limitations be part of the creative process. What does that mean? Talk about that a little bit. Your budget, this whole thing cost you one thousand dollars. Yeah, one thousand Canadian. Yeah. Um with uh what what I mean by that is 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 just simple, is like if you're really truly a genius artist, like if you're really like this beautiful artist that can make beautiful tell beautiful stories and tell big beautiful imagery, you're not you would be able to do that with any tool you grab. So like there's these YouTube videos I love watching where there's there's like these you know great musicians are playing on little kids drum sets, you know, and they'll do this crazy metal thing on this, like, you know, Barbie drum set. And, you know, and like, yeah, they're limited. It's not like the best drum set you can buy if you're going to be a percussionist, but like, it's, it's, they're still able to like be a beast on there, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, I felt the same way. I felt the same way with like my film. It's just like, all right, I don't have the background in animation school. I didn't go to film school. I don't have any of that schooling behind me, but I have the schooling of the masters behind me in visual arts and I am visually literate. And I possess the same degree as everybody who went to film school and animation school did. And at this point, it's just technique to make things move. I can go read textbooks. That's fine. I can go on Instagram. I can go on Tumblr. I could go talk to animators. I could go to film festivals and meet people. But ultimately, and what do I have around me? And then I use that to define the aesthetic. So if I try to make this like Hollywood movie on a thousand dollar budget, it's going to fall flat on its face. It's going to look stupid. Like if, if, but if I use, if I'm true to my materials, then, then you're able to, and you work within the constraints of those materials, you can create something really beautiful. If you're truly talented, you can. I think you touch on something really important there, which is this, this honesty you have to have with yourself about what is, the level of your current talent? What is the level of your creativity? Uh, you can be whoever you want to be. And I learned this, this, I'm going to date myself here, Valerie, but I learned this on MySpace, <laughs> which was my first sort of interaction with social media in my life, which was that I had a really close friend who in real life uh, was a deadbeat dad and had no job, but on MySpace earned $75,000 a year and was a loving father. And, that's the, and, and it just occurred to me, this is, and which doesn't sound like much of a phenomenon saying it now, but back then in 2006 and seven, it was like, whoa, oh, you can, wait a second. You can create an avatar of yourself that is yourself. You can be whoever you want. So I think that we can tell ourselves whatever we want online, 
But when it comes down to it, are we able to create something beautiful with the resources that we have? And that, 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 yeah, that's, exactly. a, that's a look in the mirror moment, right? Exactly. And, and I, I have a degree in drawing. So like to go into animation, that's not a stretch, not a stretch at all. So a lot of people are like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. No, no, no. It's a technique. It's animation is so straightforward when you break it down to the nuts and bolts. It's not as complex as people think it is. Yeah. We're definitely going to be less impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to do that. We're, yeah, I think people are going to watch this and end up being very impressed that you taught yourself how to animate and, and then turn that into an award-winning film. But, uh, but that's, but we are going to dig into that a little bit later because I, I, I do want people to have the resources. Um, we talked about this a few times that, that this process from discovery of the work by Jamie DeWolf to finishing this film and submitting it to festivals took you three years. One of the things that happens with first time filmmakers is needing that support group around them, needing the confidence, needing the motivation. So how did you have the patience for this? How did you keep going? Were there any doubters around you, any haters, anybody that kept saying, Oh, you're still working on that. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Totally. Like I, I didn't go to animation school. Like when I had the choice to choose my major in art school, because everyone told me I wasn't a good enough artist and I'd be a joke and a laugh and no one would be interested in my stories. I listened to that for decades. No one would be interested in anything I'd have to say. And then it took me in my thirties to be like, screw that. I'm going to tell a story. I don't really care. And I'm not going to wait for a funding body or a producer or somebody to say, it's okay for me to make a story, like make a, tell a story. No, I have a story to tell. I don't really care what you have to say. I'm going to tell it. And, and that, and that was my step moving forward. And, um, like, I'm sorry. What was your question? <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I'll, I'll rephrase it because it was kind of a long question and, and contextualized heavily, but, um, we, we, we understand filmmakers, um, are artists and, and there's, and there's frat and there's the fragility there, especially if you haven't done this before, you don't have the confidence that you're able to pull this off. I mean, you're taking three years to do this. How did you push back against people that doubted you could pull this off when it took three years, maybe even including Jamie uh, DeWolf and then who supported you through this process, help you get through and, and, and how, you know, talk about that process and, and what that meant to you. Okay. Um, I really had to look at myself. Um, the support didn't come at the beginning. Everyone thought I was stupid. I'm going to make a fool of myself. Support came when I was about halfway through and I'd start showing 10 second clips to my family and friends. Like, Hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. And then people be like, wow, that's crazy. And then at the halfway mark is when I started getting support from friends and family. Um, Interesting. Cause my worst critic is my mom. Actually, <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> so, so. So, so yeah, uh, I come from a pretty harsh family. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to like support, I got that from the film community and the animation world, like in my city, in Ottawa, the Ottawa International Animation Film Festival, it's the second largest film festival for animation focused uh, films in the world after Annecy in France. Mm -hmm. um, it's the largest in North America. It's, a, it's, it's an Oscar qualifier. It's this huge festival. It's honestly one of my favorite festivals on the circuit just after traveling like in 2019 to all these festivals. It's an amazing festival. And I would go there every year and I would, you know, pay for the industry pass. I would cry as my, my credit card burst into flames. But I would go anyway, and I would treat that as my film school. So I would go watch all the movies I could. I would go to every party I could. I would talk to anybody who would talk to me. Producers, studio, studio. I would go straight up to studio execs and just be like, hey, I'm teaching myself how to animate. Do you want to look at my stuff? La, la, la. Let's talk. Give me advice. Like, I didn't care because these things, the thing is, these important people don't remember you. <laughs> so you, I, I don't know how many times Chris Robinson, who's the director, the artistic director of uh, Ottawa International Animation Festival, I was introduced to him five times. The first four times I made a really bad impression and he made fun of me and really was really dismissive. The fifth time he bought me a beer. There you go. 
it was great. And he had no memory of the other four times we've met over the years. Like, you know, like, yeah, like these people will not remember you. So it's okay. You could be awkward as you, as ever with your business cards, just like, Hey, you know, I'm making a movie. You're making a movie. That's cool. Do you have any advice for someone like me? And uh, like, and, and just using social skills and, and yeah, eventually, um, you start making friends and those are the friends I would email the middle of the night going, I have a technical issue or, you know, or I need some advice, but, but I, when it comes to that, so it was really just the film community and Disney actually has this really unspoken policy of mentorship. Mm. So if you go and approach any one of their, their employees and they have to have uh, active social media as part of their job requirements, you can go DM them a question and they have to answer you. Oh, wow. That's a huge value to this audience. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, so just to go on Instagram, find the directors, find the artists, find whoever in whatever genre, like whatever aspect of filmmaking you're into, find people you're totally fans of that are not super famous. Like, you know, like Quentin Tarantino is not going to answer my DMs, but like, you know, someone that's not super famous, but just regular Joe and, and like message them, the DMs, they're more flattered. You're asking, and they're more than happy to like bend over backwards and give you the answers. I love that. And by the way, you would be very hard to forget. You have blue hair. So, uh, and, and today I think you had pink hair. Is that right? So, (laughs) Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> the fact that this guy didn't remember you after four times is, um, is, is not your fault. I'll put it that way. No, yeah. no, it's not. So I tell everybody, just, just go to the festivals network, like as ever they're, they're totally worth the cost of the, the, the past and then just talk and make friends, just do as much as you can to make friends. They're going to do everything to see you succeed because they're your friend. I love that. I love that. Um, you talked about animation not being like the most difficult thing. Once you know how to draw, you used charcoal, pastel, graphite, you used a powdered graphite. Am I pronouncing this right? It's called Conti. Is that how you pronounce it? Conte, or Conte? Yeah. yeah Conte. And yeah. so these were the mediums uh, to bring your story to life. Uh, why did you choose this type of animation in those materials? Ah, cause I have my budget, remember? <laughs> so the money I spent for my thousand dollars had to do with buying a, a Photoshop and dragon frame. So I didn't steal the software so that I was honest about. Good. Um, <laughs> when it came to charcoal, okay. In art school, we had to buy these drawing kits where for drawing class, where it's just like all the art supplies you need for a drawing mm-hmm. class. And it came with like a box of charcoal in them. And I never used that much charcoal. And so I have an obscene amount of charcoal in it still, still an obscene amount of charcoal. And I went and it's like, okay, I want to go use up this paper I have that I was just lying around this black paper. I used one pad of black paper. That's it. 26 pieces of paper in this entire animation. So I had this one pad of paper. I had a lot of charcoal. So I'm like, okay, let's, this is what I'm using. This is, I ha- this is like what I happen to have. And then um, I still have charcoal left over. I animated a 10 minute film using charcoal and I still have charcoal. So it's, I, I'm never going to get used to it. I'm never going to use it all up. <laughs> but when you're the director and the animator of a film, that kind of makes you the editor by default, I, I'm assuming uh, as well. When you're drawing this and when you're animating this stuff, does that mean you're directing as you animate or do you just draw a bunch of stuff and then have to edit and then use your camera to direct it separately? How does that work? Um, well, with this technique, it's really only one person can do it. So, so there's less of that having to direct other people. There's, there wasn't really that much of a skill set exactly. there. It was just sort of what my thoughts were. Um, editing and animation happens before you animate. So it's in the beginning, it's in pre-production. So I would, I would use like, uh, uh, post-it notes. That was old school classic, right. With post-it notes. And I would do these like stick figure scribbles about what this is going to look like. And then, um, I would listen to the phrasing. I would break everything down to like 10, 15 second phrasings. And then I would meditate for like a week on like the perfect way to show that, and then I wouldn't be able to do that. And I had no skill set and I had no idea how, and I didn't have the budget. So then I'm like, okay, how do I take that and like make it easier? <laughs> and then like, 
try to like simplify, simplify, simplify. And simplifying was so hard. That was really, really difficult. And then, um, and then I just experimented, like, how do I do this? And then I would just read books or like watch movies. And then I would try to pick apart technique and then just experiment. And then it would not turn out like my first take. I rarely ever kept my first take. First take sucked. So I'll be like, all right, time to redo. And then I would destroy everything. And because in stop motion, it's really unforgiving. The reason why you don't see a lot of stop motion is because you can't go in and edit like in 2D or 3D animation where you can go like, oh, that frame's not working. I'm just going to go in and fix that frame. Like you can't do that in stop motion. So in stop motion, you're, you go from frame one, two, three, four, five, six, so on. So if there's a problem with frame two, you have to delete every frame up to frame two to fix frame two. Oh, wow. So I always had to make that decision after I finished that 10, 15 seconds. Is this the best I can do? If the answer was no, then I destroyed it and did it again. Holy moly. And I would destroy it and do it again till it looked the best I can possibly do. And I had to be very honest with myself. This is where my, my art school training was really important with like being like really critical and is this working is the composition good like is the movement okay like is is that one frame over there too problematic do I leave it you know like I'd have those questions myself and then I would just do it over and over and over again till I got something good and then I would move on to the next thing I love this thing you said about how hard it is to simplify and it's a narrative I've spoke about since I got out of college um so I guess that'd be, or maybe even before, maybe 2007, 2008. And it's this idea of half and half. It's one of the best exercises I ever had. And I'm a journalism major. And we, we would have to take an article that had already been written and cut it in half. And that was extremely difficult. Like to take out a professional writer's um, or someone who got paid to write, let's at least put it that way, to take their work and then try to cut it in half without losing meaning. And then this is where it got devilish. Uh, the professor would turn around and say, now cut it in half again. And so this process of half and half and having to do that for a couple of semesters taught me the power of simplicity where you know it's the right idea when, you're, when you can sum it way, way down and, and not lose any meaning. Sometimes you can't do it at all. Sometimes it just can't happen. You cannot go half and half without losing meaning, but you do get a chiseled away piece of, of diamond from all the rock and muck that might've been around it as a writer. And I feel the same way about sculpting. I feel the same way about art, film and, and messaging without noise. And I think what you accomplished in, in, in the girl in the hallway is that you had animation that played out just like you said, with that simplicity where there isn't a lot of noise between what you're trying to animate and what Jamie DeWolf is trying to uh, elucidate in his speech. Um, so it, it's, it's really brilliant work. And I know it was not easy to simplify. So I wanted to make that a touchstone of your point there. Oh yeah. Simplification is so sophisticated. It's, it's just what, if I had the budget to make this movie, I, it wouldn't look this good. <laughs> like, honestly, like if the fact that I didn't have a budget and I had these creative constraints is what made this movie good, in my opinion. Yeah. Like if, if I had everything I wanted, like it wouldn't be this way, I think. And I think the struggle was what made me a better filmmaker for sure. I love that. And I look at like, yeah. And I look at like these, these creative restraints or just how you become more creative. Like it's, it's that saying where like necessity is the mother of all invention. Like, like for some of my transitions, so that's where I spent all my time is the transitions, not the actual like show stopping scenes. Those are really quick. It was the transitions between the each scene. And, um, I would sit there and do all these transitions and I, I would like, I invented new technique for an animation. I didn't know that till I talked to an animation professor. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I would do these moving mechanics out of origami. Cause like all I had was newspapers for free out of the recycling bin in the, in the, um, uh, mail room of my apartment building, you know? So like I was, I was literally using garbage and just like, you know, trial, like let's, 
let's make this. And um, I think just a lot of people get held up on their budget or not having the flashiest camera or, or like the equipment or they just get so hung up on budget or having all these milestones for like the perfect movie. But Warren Scorsese doesn't get the budget he wants. So if he's not getting the budget he wants, I'm not getting my budget. So tell your story. <laughs> I think it's such great advice and uh, uh, just a, a wonderful point. And if anyone wants to see what you did with some of these random pieces, garbage, et cetera, and how you turn them into art, um, your Twitter feed, uh, Instagram, Tumblr feed, which we can share all those things at the end uh, is, is a great place to start. Uh, you're quoted as saying storytelling is medicine. What is the illness? And talk to us about what you mean by that. Um, that's a really personal question. Storytelling <laughs> uh, is medicine. Um, culturally, I'm not white. So even though I'm white, culturally, I was adopted into um, the Mohawk Nation by my dad when I was four years old. And so even though I'm a white person, um, I've, I've lived in Indigenous communities and within the Indigenous community, and been raised by my dad. And it's an oral tradition, it's an oral culture um, where people tell stories and the storytelling is medicine. So you would go to an elder and you would offer them a gift and they would tell you a story and that wisdom and, and that history. And that has immense power and importance having these stories. And so when I look at important stories, like they have to serve people because like your role as a storyteller is to act like a shaman where you go off alone and you experience these things, these things in the world and you, you distill it into a story and you bring it back to people who would never experience these things and they can gain the wisdom and medicine and learn from it as well. And I think a story like what Jamie is telling with his witness testimony, where he's coming forward on a, a murder and missing indigenous women and girls to spirited crime, which he didn't even, he wasn't even aware of because the United States MMIW is not really in the forefront of a conversation, unfortunately, but in Canada, the truth and reconciliation, uh, what we're doing with truth and reconciliation for our genocide. And this is part of an ongoing genocide with murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. Yeah. And with him providing testimony to that, I think it was really important to have the fact that this particular genocide is ongoing because there's silence. Like how the police handle it, for example, they're very much part of the problem. They don't investigate. They, they just say, oh, the girl like was drunk or she went home or she, you know, like they don't, they don't find it. So a lot of these MMIW cases where unless they're really high profile, they don't get investigated. And so a lot of the families, if they're wealthy enough, can afford to hire private investigators to investigate these crimes. And I feel like if we talk about, I, I hate it's a white guy telling the story, but on the other hand, I think it's important it's a white guy telling the story because I think just to have him touched by the fact that he said nothing and he did nothing and we can learn from that, um, from that choice that he made, right. that he regrets this day. And we can learn from that. And, and that and that's how we heal is through our stories. Thank you for that. That's uh, amazing. And um, I lived with a Native American woman for about two years between 2004 and five-ish to 2006 and um, learned so much about the community that I didn't know um, just by that experience alone. Uh, the, the vices, the uh, traditions, the pride, everything. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Uh, I'm curious, which creatives do you most admire and want to emulate? And what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart as you look forward in your career? I really admire, um, oh my God, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name right now. It is very second. Guillermo de Toro. There we go. <laughs> I really admire him. Yeah, he's good. Um, the stories that he tells makes me feel not alone. Um, and I think that's what's really important, like, especially The Shape of Water, like, that made me feel not alone. Like, I watched that in theaters, like, three times. Um, 
and I love just his aesthetic and how visually he is. And I like the fact his reputation is like, he's apparently the sweetheart and this really nice guy and he's very generous and kind. And, um, I like hearing about that with my heroes cause there's too many directors I look up to. And then I find out they're jerks on set and I'm just like, Oh, mm-hmm. you're ruining it for me, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like the I like the fact that he can be an artist the way he is and tell amazing stories and do it in with kindness. Yeah, my favorite movie of his is Pan's Labyrinth, and um, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and we we interviewed uh, a filmmaker in Los Angeles named Nick Lopez, who made a incredible short film. I believe it's called Teeth. T-E-E-T-H. And it just looks, it is lush. It looks like uh, a uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, movie as well. So um, if you do get a chance to listen back to his or watch that film, go do it if you if you love him. I think you'll be into... Yeah, I'll go check out the film for yeah, sure. Yeah. You'll be into Nick Lopez as well. Um, moving ahead... Uh, I know you have a comedy horror short you're working on. I know you have a feature script you finished about mental health. Um, are any of those going to be uh, animated? Um, and how is animation, you, you mentioned who you love and who you want to emulate. Uh, how is animation not being used in film? Like, like what's missing? What could be added? So kind of a two-parter there. Oh my God. Animators love, talk, love, animators love talking about this. This is what we talk about all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. What's missing in animation? Um, animation, the strength of animation is the fact that you're not limited by reality. You're limited by drawing. Okay. So, so your artistic skills is what limits you. Um, with, with that being said, I find the mistake a lot of live action filmmakers use with animation is the first off they dismiss the the medium completely like oh it's a genre no it's not a genre it's not kids <laughs> there's a lot of animation for adults case in point my film is for adults not children um you know so so it's it's a medium with its own emphasis and its own priorities that's different from documentary space which is different from the live action space and i feel like um filmmakers a big mistake a lot of filmmakers do is they stick to their one space but they don't peek into documentary and animation or they don't peek into live action and documentary. And I, I say this to animators too. I tackle them on this as well. Like you got to start watching live action. You can't just stick to animation because, because each, each area, each type of story requires a certain type of storytelling. And I find that in live action, animation is not utilized well because the focus is on realism. And at that point, it's like, why are you animating it? Like, if it's real, it's just cheaper just to use a camera and photograph it. Like, why are you, why are you constructing that out of nothing? Like, that doesn't make sense. So um, that's why animation that's hyper real doesn't work out really well. You get this uncanny valley, like, this looks weird and creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Polar Express, for example, it looks weird and creepy because they just went too realistic. It looks better when it doesn't look real. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it allows you to have an imagination as a as an audience. Like so, when I look at the South Park drawing, which uh, you know in its first five or ten years was criticized for how poorly it's animated. That's part of the novelty of it. That's part of why we believe these boys can do anything and get into any kind of trouble. Uh, because of the way it's it's drawn. If it were hyper-realistic, it would take us out of that place where we can just laugh at these guys being ridiculous, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, the second part of the question about animation. So my, my short that I'm working with, NFB, is uh, animated. It's in 2D digital animation. And I'm doing a completely different style. So I'm doing a different type of animation and all of that. And um, it's it's going to be sort of, uh, of the style of, uh, Doré. If you know anything about art history, Doré is this really, really cool guy. You should check out sometime. Uh, his last <laughs> name is spelled D-O-R-E, D-O-R-E with an accent et goût on it. Um, if you're French, he's a French romanticist. And so it's just mind-blowingly beautiful engraving. So it's going to be in that style. Um, it's a love story. It's an anti-love story that takes place in hell during the apocalypse. 
and these poor monsters are are caught up in the the middle of it. Asterion and Charlotte. So Asterion is the Minotaur and Charlotte is a harpy. And um, it's also a sort of really loose retelling of Dante's Inferno. I love it. I'm named after Dante's Inferno. Um, My middle name is, I have two middle names, Adonis Dante. And uh, so I'm Christopher Adonis Dante Barkley. And my Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think my mom gave Um, me Adonis for the God of love and then my dad gave me Dante the writer. So Dante's a friend. Okay. Okay, perfect. Okay, cool. So Italian poetry, yes. Medieval Italian poetry for Mm -hmm. sure because I told you I'm obsessed with poetry. and outside of that, uh, my mental health script, my feature, it's Tall Ceilings and Thin Floors. Um, it's a hybrid. So it's live action, but it's also animation. Um, and the animation is equal to the live action, which is going to make it really hard to find funding for. But I found a producer just recently, like a month ago. So we're hoping against hope that this like incubator I applied for, for like women in film and television, like it's accepted and we can move forward. But what's cool about the two forms exist coexisting together is it's going to really create a unique visual language. That's going to be really perfect for talking about um, a mental health uh, symptom that people don't talk about. It's about uh, disassociation. Mm -hmm. And that has a uh, an aesthetic. I have mental health problems, and I'm a disassociative subtype. So what it looks like, it, you don't experience time the same way as everybody else. And going into animation, where I can play with timing in like by the frame, is going to be really important for me to tell, like, to show my audience how does somebody who doesn't experience time in a linear sense, how does that experience in a in a visual way. So um, that's going to be a really interesting challenge. So this movie's probably going to be like decades before it's made, but like I'm going to do everything I can to get it made. It sounds needed. It sounds fascinating. Give us the title one more time, the, the tentative title. Tall, tall Ceilings and Thin Floors. Tall Ceilings and Thin Floors. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be great. I know that's what's next for you. You had so much success with Girl in the Hallway and you decided to animate it without knowing how to animate is there have you sort of changed for good are you do you feel I, I guess pigeonholed is the is the wrong word but do you feel like everything you make now has to include animation because that's what you're known for or can you go back to the Valerie that existed before you knew how to, to animate uh, I'm not going back to the visual art world. I I can't stand. I can't stomach it. Um, like the best advice I ever got. It, okay, <laughs> okay. Rewind. Okay, story time. Love it. In in art school, um, we have these things called grad panels, and so this school, like, you would have to do your your grad your graduation piece, and then you get a bunch of teachers that you've never worked with in the four years you're at that school, so they don't know you. And they evaluate your work and they decide if they're going to graduate you or not. So it doesn't matter if you pass all your classes. If you fail your grad panel, you're not graduating. So um, I had my grad panel and it was, um, I did this like really cool thing with printmaking. I was obsessed with printmaking at the time. And so it was all printmaking for me at that point. And there was nothing you can say to convince me otherwise at that point in time in my life. So they told me the best piece of advice is like, you're going to go nowhere with, with, printmaking is going to go nowhere for you. No one cares about printmaking, but when you're tired of your career going nowhere, change mediums. And that's exactly what I did. I changed mediums. Best advice ever. My career was going absolutely nowhere. I couldn't get shows. No one was interested in looking at my art. So it was, it was really depressing for me, like making art without an audience ever, you know, like I was just making it and just putting it in my house and like showing it on like Facebook going, Hey guys, this is what I made. And like, I, I would never get an art show ever. Like it was, it was just so odd. And, um, when I changed to animation, like people were interested in what I had to say and looking at my art and appreciating my work. And I, and it just so much more satisfying making art when you have an audience and you're not just, you know, like I didn't go to art school to 
be create like to make art for myself. Like I didn't need to go to art school for that. I could have just stayed at home and did art on my own. Right. Like that's what most people do for a hobby. Like it's not a hobby. I'm taking this very seriously and to never have a public space to exhibit or have that respect or that dialogue I'm trying to have with, with society and my audience and not have that. So I'm not going back to the visual art world. Like that's, that's, that chapter is sort of done for me. I still do art, but it's more of feeling the animation um, I love animation. I love animated films. So I'm happy being where I am. Um, I'm more worried about people thinking I'm a one hit wonder though, or having the expectations that I'm going to be pigeonholed with really dark and difficult, sensitive topics. And that's the thing working on, on this film. That was the difficult part about it. It wasn't making a movie or no budget or like the typical things people complain about. Um, what was for me, it was the emotional toll of telling it. It was traumatic for me to tell this. And, and, um, I, I realized it's not my calling to tell these kind of stories. It's too damaging to myself spiritually and emotionally. I can't do that anymore. So I'm glad that girl in the hallway was completed. I nearly, like I was in and out of mental hospitals. Like I'm, when I'm saying like, I wasn't handling it. I wasn't handling it. Right. Right. Wow. <laughs> so, so like, and I nearly died. Like, like when you're hospitalized, you're like serious mental illness, like it's life and death at that point when you're hospitalized. So like, I, I couldn't handle this crime. Like I love true crime. And I, it was surprising for me thinking I can handle animating something like that, but animating, um, something that's real where I didn't have the comfort of saying this wasn't a true story. Like the fact this is a true, very true story and Sienna is very much a real person. And, you know, I don't know very much about her besides the, the nature of her death, which is really unfortunate, right? Like I, I'm desperate to know what her favorite Disney princess is and what she wanted to be when she grew up and her favorite sports and her favorite food. Like I want to know who she is as a person. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'll never know that. And I, I got a lot of people on the festival circuit wanting me to animate rape scenes and animate, you know, suicide stuff and like animate, you know, missing women and like, 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 uh, sexual exploitation and human trafficking. And like, as much as all these issues are so important, like I, I can't, I can't. Right. I don't even know if they realize what they're asking you to do. Right. Like this is, this has to come out of your mind and onto some medium and, if it exists in your mind, it's going to disturb you. It's just, that's just the way our, our brains work. So. Yeah. Like there's scenes in there where I'm bawling my eyes out as I'm drawing, like just bawling my eyes out as I'm like sitting there, like crying, going like, wow, this is like art school all over again, man. Just crying and drawing at the same time. Like, like it's, it's just, um, so I don't want to get pigeonholed in like these really dark, depressing topics. That's not my calling. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I'm more worried about is just people thinking that is what I do. Well, there's so much to dig into on that. And I just want to thank you for sharing it. And um, the, the, one of the things that really stuck out there in the beginning is your willingness to take some very blunt advice. Uh, I don't think, you know, stateside professors give such blunt advice because we're just an overly litigious society anyway. And it's such a brand focused society. And so um, students miss out on that raw honesty a lot of times. And then I think the second thing is just this idea that um, you could swallow your pride. There's so many creatives that would say, oh, so-and-so said I should change my medium when I'm tired of doing this because no one's going to care. Well, I'm going to prove them wrong. And you spend your whole life trying to prove one person wrong. And you just, you just can't do that. You see a lot of people... Um, that are immature young people, they, they spend all their money to prove that they have money and they go broke doing that <laughs> to somebody else that doesn't have money. So it just, it's, it's this thing we do. And, and so I just commend you for having the courage and the honesty to swallow your pride and say, you know what? Fair enough. What they said is coming to fruition. I'm going to switch my medium. And you found this amazing success doing it now and, and i wish you nothing but um just great success in the future with this um in, in your opinion what are the top three resources for helping someone learn how to animate the way you did so i promised this audience we'd get into sort of that value side here a little bit 
Um, right. If you had to pick three things to start with to to help someone learn how to animate from scratch, what would those three things be? I thing one, draw, draw every day, draw all the time. It's the only way you're going to get good is draw. So life drawing. So it could be something as simple as table of chairs or like uh, a still life, or um, you can go uh, and then do that like 15 minute drawing a day. And then in a sketchbook, you'll actually literally watch your improvement as it happens, um, which is really exciting for you. If you stick it for a month, you'll see your improvement. You will and guaranteed. And it's going to be so cool. Like when you go through that sketchbook, um, croaky cafe, I will email, um, you guys with, with that resource, that's a free online, um, life drawing. So you can physically distance with that and work on life, new life drawing. Mm -hmm. That's going to be really important. So that'd be step one. You're only as good as how you draw in animation. So step one, learn how to draw. Mm -hmm. Step two, um, I would say to be a really good animator, or, or, or just what are those resources? Like, so number two could be that program you just mentioned. Can you spell that program by the way? Croaky Cafe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Croaky Cafe is a Vimeo channel. Okay. Got it. And it's uh, C-R-O-Q-U-I-S Cafe and it's art models. Got it. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. So you can do that for drawing. The second one would be, um, the book, uh, animation. Let me just animation survival here it is all right so the next one is a classic everyone has this it's a mandatory reading it's worth a hundred dollars on amazon <laughs> okay but it's called the animation survival mm -hmm. kit um it's a white book it's by richard williams it's a classic it's a mandatory reading for every animation school ever if you go through that book line by line and you you will be able to animate after going through that book got it got it so um, resources, croquet cafe, animation survival kit, and draw every day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third one, okay, because the croquet cafe was was the draw every day mm -hmm. one. Um, oh, got it. The third, yeah, the third one I'd say is attend film festivals. Mm -hmm. Attend them, like go to them. Oh my god, they're like film school. <laughs> Just go, <laughs> like you know, like become friends, like. I had so many, like, yeah, I didn't get a lot of help from, like, I got a lot of help from industry people, not in the sense I got like a budget and I got all this, like, you know, this flashy stuff, but I straight up got like one-on-one -on -one with like studio execs telling me exactly what I need to do to like make a film and hit it out of the park and listen to their advice, honestly. Like, you know, if they don't have time to mentor you, like maybe they have time to give you 10 minutes of advice. Right. You know, right. um, so, so do that. Like, go find, go find your, go find your community, like go on Instagram. Oh my God. Instagram is like where all the animators are. And then you can go through the film festivals and then, you know, go, okay, I like that animation. So I'm going to go find them on Instagram. So you guarantee you will find them on Instagram. And, and they're like me, like DM me. I'm excited when people DM me. I'm like, oh, hey, a fan letter. <laughs> you know, like they're like that too. No one cares about independent animation. So, so, so yeah, we're we're friendly, friendly, enthusiastic bunch that would be more than happy to like give you advice. And and Facebook has so many animation groups, honestly, just like like 2D animation or stop motion or like whatever you want to do, like visual VFX, like there, there's whole groups on there where people post like articles, how-to stuff, like advice, critique, like whatever you need. Writers groups, like it doesn't matter. Like go, go find it. It's all on social media. Yeah. I love that. And it's basically a way to find your tribe and, and get around those people. Some of the best advice, by the way, I heard early on uh, festival advice sort of, and sort of how to grow in a festival is when you talk to an executive, you could walk up to them and say, Hey, I know you're not uh, you don't have time right now. I know you're busy right now, but would you have time to get a beer with me at six o'clock? And the answer is probably going to be yes. You know, beer on me, dinner on me, six o'clock. Here's the place. Do you have time for that? And that's, and you know, after the festival's over, that's what they're looking to do. So, you know, I, there is a lot of um, wisdom in, in what you said there, Val. And, and follow up too. Oh my God. Like when you have a relationship, like, like, 
<laughs> there's this one guy I follow up with him once a year, every year before basketball, I would email him and go, Hey, what's up? Here's an update. <laughs> it's, like, it's like follow up. Like no one follows up either. So like keep those, those relationships that you form. Right. right absolutely. And and the worst thing is when, and the saddest thing is when you know, someone has an ambition and you say, Hey, how are you doing on that? And they say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, have you joined any groups on Facebook? Who's your community? Oh, I haven't done any of that. So it's like, well, are you really trying, you know? So, um, that, that's, that's too bad. But if you really want to do it, I think that you gave some sage advice there to this audience. So thank you for that. And, and Valerie, I just, I wish you the best of luck in everything that you're, that you're doing. I think you're incredible. I can't wait to see what you produce next. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media and on the internet and maybe even where they can see some of your work? Yeah, no problem. So uh, my website is girlinthehallwaymovie.com. Really easy. My Instagram is at girlinthehallwaymovie. That's easy. And that's, that's it. So you'll find my contact information on my website and you'll be able to contact me through Instagram. No problem. Absolutely. I think your website is so well built. It is so beautiful. It really, um, I really enjoy just perusing it and, and being surprised by all the elements in it. So kudos to you on that. And, 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 um, if you developed it yourself and kudos to your guidance, if you had someone develop it for you, okay. Wix. That's what we use too. That's what we use too. It's a, <laughs> you get as creative as you want to. Wix is the perfect canvas. So Wix.com. Yeah. And and it's it's funny. I, I had this uh I'm also a fan of Moo uh for business cards and I get so many compliments uh, on my business cards. Like people think I spend so much money mm-hmm. on them, but it's just Moo.com. That's another one I'm very happy customer. I'm not getting paid to recommend them at all. Like I just have <laughs> Moo.com. Plus they send you cards with compliments about your hair. When you open up your box, you're like, your hair looks great. And you're like, yes, this film festival. I'm going to do hot girl shit. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This episode brought to you by MooBusinessCards.com. It's <laughs> uh, wonderful. This is awesome. We'll, we'll end it on this. Um, are all your pets named after Lord of the Ring characters or only your cat Gandalf? Only my cat Gandalf. Oh. Because she's gray. So when she was born, she was like this gray kitten now. So like the gray one, the gray one, Gandalf the gray. I mean, that's how she came to her name. <laughs> you have two dogs and two cats and they get along just fine, right? Yes. Yes. And they're all rescues, every last one of them. And they're like peas in a pod. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Uh, that, that aligns perfectly with who you've told us you are today. Valerie, this has been such a pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed it so, so much. Uh, best of luck in everything that you do. Please don't be a stranger. And, and thank you again for the conversation. Oh, thanks for reaching out, man. Like, this is great. I'm really flattered. Thanks. Anytime. Stay in touch. And hopefully when the virus is over, uh, you can make your way down here. I can make my way up there and we can have uh, a croissant and uh, a coffee together. Yes. Love croissants. (laughs) Go croissants. Me too. (laughs) Talk soon, Val. All right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.